About a year ago, I read an article about a light switch that was being developed for the Sabbath. Uh, because the rabbis have concluded that to connect a circuit is work. And you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So what they did is they created a, a light switch that had an intermittent pulse. And if that pulse came through and there was light, the circuit would come on and the lights would turn on. And so the idea was we could walk over to the light switch and flip it up and open up a the light sensor, and then on the next pulse, if there was light there, it would come on. But the light switch is being further developed now to randomize the light coming on because it was too predictable so that we could predict the work to close the circuit and flip the switch. And, and you see where this is going. It, it becomes a, a level of um, missing the forest for the trees with work. Uh, I heard a story of a, of a professor in residence at Hebrew University who was, he'd gone to visit a, a professor there on the Sabbath and they were about an hour into a conversation and he had asked the professor, could you sign my book? And the professor said, I can't sign the book, it's Sabbath and to put two words together, a signature, would be work. And the, the man noticed the contradiction because they'd been sitting there an hour, the, the professor had been up and down a ladder pulling books off the shelf, working up a sweat, moving these books. But, but because the oral law said that we couldn't write two words together, he couldn't sign a signature. Another case in, in missing the point. And I don't say this lightly and I don't intend to be mocking with the story, but just to to begin to paint an idea of the mindset of the Pharisees that we're going to encounter in the text today. Because in our text today, we're going to see the Pharisees confront Jesus about the Sabbath, and, and we're going to walk away with two big ideas. The first is Jesus' relationship to the law. And the second is God's heart and, and how the, the fact that Jesus is, I'm, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The, the law and how we apply the law. And then second is Jesus's relationship to the law. And so you and I aren't tempted maybe to follow Sabbath laws, but we might be programmed in our own hearts to think about our relationship with God in a very works-based manner or to, to have a very task-oriented approach to our faith and and sometimes I feel like in my own heart that I can miss the point and so when we look at the text today we're gonna you know that this text follows right on the heels of the text John preached last way and the words that lead into this text is my yoke is easy and my burden is light and so as we work through the text today, I want you to contrast that. I want you to think about the light burden that Jesus calls us to versus the heavy burden of the Pharisees. So we're going to see that contrast as we walk through. And at the end, there's going to be a contrast so sharp that I think if you were reading it for the first time with no historical background, you might gasp. So let's look at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and His disciples became hungry, 
and began to pick heads, of, pick heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The first thing we want to note is the Pharisees up in the, Gal the region of Galilee, that's, a, that's an oddity. So right off the bat, we, we get a sense that the Pharisees are where they want to be because they're looking for this confrontation with Jesus. They're coming to this with impure motives. And, and we see right away the first contrast of that, the light yoke versus the heavy yoke. We got Jesus allowing His disciples to eat versus the, the Pharisees' strict adherence to the law. Hey, they're not supposed to do that. Exodus 20, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Later in Exodus 31, God tells Moses, he, he gets more specific, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. God had set apart the Sabbath as a picture of the covenant that He made specifically between Himself and Israel. And He gave them very clear commands that we're setting aside this day that, that, that in, 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 as the Israelites lived among the community around them and later even when they're carried out into Babylon in the exile that there's something different about these people. These are the people of God. They don't work on the Sabbath. And God says, here it is. It's a sign, an outward sign. So in a sense, the Pharisees are committed to a noble pursuit, that, that they're concerned about something that's important because God said it was important. The problem is the rabbis had expanded this and they continued to expand it over the centuries as they attempted to more and more specifically divine, how is it that we actually keep the Sabbath? What is it that actually constitutes work? So they began to define work. Uh, we use the term that they use the term that, that basically we're building a fence around the law. It's like when your kids were small and you didn't want to stick their finger in the light socket. And you go by the plugs that go in the light socket. But then they go fiddle with the plugs and then you make the rule that we don't even touch the light socket. And then you go through and they're touching the light socket, so now you put a chair in front of the light socket. Well, those are all proactive steps to protect your children from something truly dangerous. And so the rabbis were simply attempting to say, how is it we live out the Sabbath? The problem is by the time today or, or even in the time of Jesus, we had gotten so specific as to become almost absurd. It'd be like saying, okay, you can't even go into the house because we're afraid you're going to touch the light socket. And so the Mishnah and the Talmud are these documents that we have that are basically commentary on the law. And, and when they're explaining how the Sabbath is to be observed, one of the things you notice is there's, there's a lot of disagreement on exactly how it is to be practiced. I came across an old DTS academic journal, Bibsac, uh, Almost a hundred year ago article, the, the author was saying the Talmud teaches that Rabbi Yehuda says, if a man steps into loam, that's a type of soil, if a man steps into loam, 
he should wipe his feet on the ground and not a wall. But Rabbah said, why should he not do that? Because it might be presumed if he plasters the wall, he's engaged in working and building. And he says, nay, this is ordinary building, but more like field work. On the contrary, if he wipes his feet on the ground, he might accidentally smooth out an incubation. Hence, he would rather wipe his feet on the wall. For the same reason, he shouldn't wipe his feet on the side of an incubation unless he goes out. So you, you get this idea that they're debating where I should wipe my feet off because I might accidentally do work in smoothing out the wall or the floor. The rabbis taught that a small man shouldn't wear a large shoe lest it fall off and he feel compelled to carry it on the Sabbath. He may, he may, however, wear a large shirt since there is no fear of his taking that off and carrying it. If a person is in one place and his hand filled with fruit and put forth to another and the Sabbath overtook him in that position, he has to drop the fruit since if he withdrew his full hand from one place to another, he would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. These are not made up. Women are forbidden to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because they might discover a white hair and try to pull it out, which would be a grievous sin. <laughs> a radish might be dipped into salt, but not left in it too long, since this would be similar to making a pickle. And then there's a, there's a, there's a principle that if a wall falls on a person, that, that people can come and remove the debris from the wall until they know the person might be alive. And if the person's alive, then they can go ahead and clear the rest of the wall. But if the person's thought dead, they have to leave until the next day. And you start to, to just feel this intense sense of you're missing the point. We have intertestamental writings that limited activity, you know, no walking further than a thousand cubits, which is about a quarter mile, no wearing perfume no opening a sealed vessel, no starting a fire, no killing anything. There were thousands of these. Even if you go to Israel today, if you, if you go into a hotel or a public building on the Sabbath, there are usually two elevators. One stops at every floor, so no one has to push the button and activate the circuit. I, 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 for those of you who have been to Israel, as you go on to the Temple Mount, you go through the, um, the metal detectors. And there's a sign that says, this system has been made suitable for use on the Sabbath and festivals by the Zomed Institute. The chief rabbis of Israel have ruled that walking through the metal detector does not violate Sabbath or festivals. And again, I don't say these things to mock. I say these things to say we have a tendency as humans to want to just, to just be obsessive in keeping rules. And so the Pharisees, when they come to Jesus, it's, it's that attitude, it's that desire that, that the fences are built with oral tradition to help keep people from breaking the law. Now, the disciples, it's important to note, as they're walking through this field, it's totally okay for them to take the wheat. That that's part of the gleaning laws that were for, for passers-by. You can take the wheat. The issue was they were doing it on the Sabbath, and, and the ruling had been plucking the wheat is reaping, rubbing it between your fingers is threshing, and blowing away the chaff is, is winnowing. And so there was little doubt in the Pharisees' minds that Jesus' disciples were working and the accusation is brought to Jesus because he's the rabbi. The rabbi is responsible 
for what His disciples are doing. So Jesus, your guys are doing work on the Sabbath. You're violating the law. Let's look at Jesus' response. In verse 3, He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God. They ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but for the priests alone. Jesus understood how the Pharisees thought that, that their default, their good lawyers, their default is to the letter of the law. They think like litigating attorneys. So he's going to give them an argument. And, and he doesn't dismiss the law. He doesn't say the Sabbath doesn't apply anymore. He, he answers them based on Scripture. This is the, the story that's told to us in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 6, when Davis and David instructed the priest to give him the bread of the presence for he and his men because they were hungry. That, that, that David understood and Jesus now understands and demonstrates to the Pharisees that the lives of people are more important than the law in, in its technical reading. That if, if David and his men could break the law for hunger, how much more could Jesus? And he's going to continue building his case. Chapter, verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus acknowledges that the priests work on the Sabbath and yet God considers them innocent. He points to the priest. He makes the point they're doing God's work, so they're guiltless. And, 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 and then he wraps up with a shocking statement, though. He says, something greater than the temple is here. He's not just greater than the priest. He's not just greater than the leaders. He's saying, I'm greater than the temple. If, if service over the temple takes precedence over the Sabbath, then Jesus in His ministry have even more priority over the Sabbath. If what David was doing, if what the priests were doing is enough, then certainly Jesus and His disciples, because He's greater than the temple. And He says the disciples are more innocent than the priests because the disciples are serving something even greater than the temple. You see the parallel there. It's a, it's a greater than argument. Priests to temple, disciples to Jesus. Jesus is greater than the temple. Therefore, disciples are blameless because Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant. To this point, the temple has been the focus of God's presence among His people. Where do we go to be in God's presence? We go to the temple. Well, now... In the person of Jesus Christ, God is actually here with them. The temple was looking forward to something. The temple was looking forward to the Christ, to the Messiah. And so this isn't a rejection by Jesus of the temple. It's not a rejection of the law. Remember he told us back in chapter 5, he came to fulfill the law. It's that God's presence is actually here now in the Messiah. I am greater than the temple. And, and, and you see this theme that's coming out with the Pharisees, you know, that they've missed 
the point of the law. Jesus is going to continually through the rest of the book of Matthew show them where they've missed the point of the law. They're insisting on the letter of the law. Jesus insists on the spirit of the law, which as we'll talk about in a little bit is actually raising the bar, not lowering it. And second, and, and worse, they've missed the Messiah. He's right here with them and they're coming, making accusations and try to catch him in a less than sincere debate. He is the authority over the law. And then he really gets to the heart of the matter in the next verse. Verse 7, he says, But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You wouldn't have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If you had known, this is loaded language, if you had known, and he's assuming they don't. You guys have missed the point. Because if you'd have known, and you don't, he's already said back in chapter 9, he's given us the same passage as a quote of Hosea 6. And the Pharisees keep making the same mistake. They're straining gnats to apply the law specifically, but they're missing the entire point of the law. The term Hosea uses is, is, I desire hesed. I desire loving kindness. It's translated compassion, but it's the idea of a loyal love that God desires our heart. He desires our commitment. He desires what's in here more than sacrifice. You know, it's relatively easy for a limited time to do some external things. What God wants is far deeper. And Jesus says, I desire hesed, not sacrifice. He's surely thinking of what he'll talk about later in chapter 23 when he says they, talking about the Pharisees, they tie heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they are unwilling to move so much as a finger. They're not just demanding that others keep the external. They're hypocritical and they're doing it because they don't even keep it themselves. You see, Jesus is telling them the Sabbath was never intended to be a burden. It was rest. It was God's mercy. He sets the example in creation by creating for six days and then taking a break, taking a rest as an example to us, not because He needed rest, that Sabbath is an invitation to the mercy of God, not some external set of rules that are meant to, to, to apply pressure. Jesus is letting them know, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark, in this same story in Mark, Jesus adds, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I think about one time I was flying and there was a lady sitting beside me and, and she was a professional lady. She was heading to a to a business meeting in another city and she was working a Sudoku puzzle. And, and we struck up a conversation, started talking, and she was working on the Sudoku and she said it was just a chance for her to, to disengage. When she's on the flight, she tried to have some downtime. And I was like, that's awesome. And she said, but I've been really busy at work lately, so I've gotten behind. And down on the floorboard in front of her, she had a Kroger bag that had a stack about this thick of Sudoku puzzles. And it struck me, I was like, She's stressed out about the very thing that was supposed to bring her rest. Seriously, I wanted to say to her, Sudoku was made for you, not you for Sudoku. 
But it, but it was, she was, she just confessed that, you know, it's, I've, I've got to get through the pile. I was like, wow, we can even take our leisure and turn it into stress. And everything has been built to this point because he says, for, because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has the authority. He has authority over the Sabbath because he's God. His interpretation of the Sabbath is the only one that counts. It's not that his disciples didn't break their rules. They did. But they did it with Christ's authority. He allowed them to do it. The Sabbath is his. And again, remember back to chapter 5. He doesn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He fulfills us. Jesus gives us a true understanding of what it means to experience Sabbath rest. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. That by our faith in Him, our work is done. The Sabbath was about mercy, not legalism. The Pharisees had taken out all of the mercy, all of the rest, all of the joy. And Jesus is challenging their entire understanding of what the Sabbath was intended for. D.A. Carson in From the Sabbath to the Lord's Day says that Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath is not only a messianic claim of grand proportions. I mean, think about this. You know, when, when, when people out in our community say that Jesus didn't really claim to be God, what is this? He's saying, I'm over the law. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a Christological marker. This is a, this is a clear claim of the deity of Christ, and it's earth-shifting. It's why the passage is going to end the way it ends. Jesus is claiming something great here. But, but Carson says it's not only a messianic claim of grand proportions, but it raises the possibility of a future change or a reinterpretation of the Sabbath in precisely the same way that his professed authority over the temple or superiority over the temple raises certain possibilities about ritual law. So what he's saying is Jesus is showing us that both the temple and the Sabbath were actually intended as shadows. They're pictures, they're images of something that's going to come down the road. Verse 9, they come back at Jesus again. Departing from there, He went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And He questioned Him saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse Him. Luke lets us know that this is another Sabbath. That, that Matthew puts these stories together thematically so that we'll see them back to back. But Luke lets us know that there's time elapsed. It's also interesting, it says He went to their synagogue that we're starting to see distance between the Pharisees, between the Jews and Jesus. As He went to their synagogue, the rift is growing. Luke also tells us that it's the man's right hand, and, and the word implies that it's shriveled. So, so culturally speaking, this man is disabled. He's not able to work. In a, in a culture where work is all done with the hands, if his hand is shriveled, if it's disabled, he's not able to work. So he's in a, he's in a hopeless situation that he's not able to make a living, that, that this is devastating. 
But based on their understanding of the law, they're actually asking him a legitimate question. Hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Especially given the fact that this doesn't appear to be a life-threatening condition, right? It, chances are this isn't going to kill him overnight. So Jesus, wouldn't you wait till tomorrow? Is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Uh, but according to their understanding, healing him would break the Sabbath. But the text lets us know they're not really coming at this. You know, that excerpt I read about the, the, the dirt on the shoe, that's two guys interacting trying to figure it out. That's what a lot of the Mishnah and the Talmud is. It's, it's an interaction. It's, it's, it's this rabbi feels this way, this rabbi, rabbi feels this way. Let's work these guys together. That's not what's happening here. It tells us right here clearly in the text. They came and asked Jesus this question, why? So that they might accuse him. Matthew reveals their motives. They're not sincere. They're not really interested in Jesus' thought. They're just gathering evidence so that they can pile on. And ironically, they have no concern for the man who's sitting here with the shriveled hand. And Jesus said to them in verse 11, What man is there among you who has sheep, and if he falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than sheep? So then, it is lawful to work, to do this, on this to heal on the Sabbath. Again, when, when he says... What man is there among you? The inference is, what kind of people are you? What's going on? The, the rabbis, in the case of the sheep here, would say that you can't do an act of rescue. You know, that they would do camouflage pits to catch wildlife to protect the sheep. And so if your sheep accidentally fell into one of those, there were all sorts of accommodations that could be made. You know, you could put food down with the sheep. You could put some kind of little structure down there that the sheep might be able to crawl out on his own, but there was no active rescue. You could bring a blanket, whatever it takes to keep the animal alive or to let him climb out, but, but none of them written down would allow you to enter. But what Jesus knows is practically speaking, people save the sheep. And so he appeals here to the practical reality that most people are going to take care of the sheep. And he's making the point, you make accommodations because people save these sheep. How much more valuable is it to save a man? But yeah, sure, you could put food and water down there and get the sheep tomorrow. But most of you guys pull the sheep out. How much more important is it? This is a human being made in God's image. How can we be having this conversation? And, and so it's interesting, Jesus doesn't appeal in this case to their legal precedent. He's dealt with that earlier as much as the practical reality of how these situations were handled. And then we come really to a sharp contrast in verse 13. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. It's interesting. Then he said to the man, Jesus didn't even do the work. He just spoke. By the Pharisees' reading, by the, by the Pharisees' interpretation, by their reasoning, Jesus speaking, who did the healing? Well, God did the healing. So by their reasoning, God broke God's Sabbath. It wasn't even Jesus. 
Jesus is making a point to, to show the absurd. Instead of responding how they should have. I mean, if we were, if we were standing here and a man's shriveled hand appeared and was like the solid, what would we do? We'd be, wow, I can't believe it. I got to tell somebody about this. That's amazing. God did this thing I can't even imagine. That's how a normal person would respond to this story, but it's the opposite. Instead of wow, instead of observing this demonstration of God's power, they go out and conspire to kill him. It didn't prompt their faith. It's a contrast. They reject a healing on the Sabbath, but apparently going out and plotting someone's death is totally fine to do on the Sabbath. <laughs> it's absurd. And yet they're blinded, they're hardened to the reality of what's happening in their hearts. And Jesus just puts it right out there in front of them and exposes it. And so I think the question we have to ask is why is this text here? Why do we, what do we draw out of this text? Look back at verses seven and eight. It says, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I think the first reason this text is clearly here is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He claims to be the Messiah. He does the work of the Messiah. He speaks with the authority of the Messiah. And by the end of the book of Matthew, there's incontrovertible evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. So I think the first purpose of this text is to let you and I know, to let you and me know, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. As we read through the rest of this book, we are in awe watching the work that He's going to do as the Messiah and to help us understand that He is greater than the temple. He's the fulfillment of the law. Things are changing. And the second thing, I think, is to help us understand what God ultimately cares about. You know, the Sabbath was this picture of the covenant between God and the Israelites. It's a day set apart for Israel to show her dependence to God. That He's the one that makes us who we are. To understand our relationship with the Sabbath, I think we have to understand our relationship to the law. Because we're in a different spot. You and I are not under the law. We're not under the law of the Sabbath. And in Matthew 22 later, one of the Pharisee lawyers is going to come and try to trick Jesus. He's going to say, what's the greatest of the laws? And remember what Jesus says? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments, the whole law rests. So Jesus gives us basically spark notes for the law to say, love God, love your neighbor. If you've done that, you've kept the law. Now the reality is you and I living in 21st century America, if we just went out on the street and told people to love God and love their neighbor, man, we may hear all kinds of ideas of what that sounds like. That it's that sentence with no context is a very subjective, or it opens itself up to some very subjective interpretation. But as we go read our Old Testament, we read through the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting, if you frame the Ten Commandments, you, you notice the first four commandments 
explain how to do what? How to love God. The last six commandments tell us what? They tell us how to love our neighbor. Okay. So now, love God, love neighbor, it, it fleshes itself out a little more specifically. I understand what it means. And as we keep looking at Israel, as, as Israel develops and they come to Sinai, and, and the Mosaic Code is rolled out, and we get this collection of 613 laws, give or take, then what we start to realize is every one of those laws is written to explain how or why to live out, love God, and love your neighbor. So that law is, is to a specific group of people in a specific time, peri time period within the, the covenant relationship with God, and it fleshes out the idea of how we love God and how we love our neighbors. So that you and I don't go back and, and apply the law itself, we apply the principle of the law because it's how we love God and love neighbor, right? But we're not under that obligation. Our righteousness doesn't depend on our ability to keep the law. That's the, the Old Testament law is a picture for us of how we love God and love neighbor. So when Jesus comes onto the scene and he tells this lawyer, love God, love your neighbor, he's actually appealing back to the heart of the law. And that's how you and I are to live. It's under the idea that we love God and we love the neighbor. Well, what's interesting is, is the rabbis with the Mishnah and the Talmud in creating this fence, they started taking the 613 and expounding on that and creating a whole other to-do list. Because as humans, our tendency is just to expand our to-do list, right? It's to expand our, here's how you do this thing. I mean, I remember every game we invented as kids, we were just constantly adding rules and fixing things, right? And so that's the idea. Love God, love your neighbor isn't enough. The Ten Commandments isn't enough. The 613 laws isn't enough. Now we're going to explain, and that's where we get a lot of, you know, we just looked at the Sabbath law. That was this one little part. This idea of how do we live that out? Tell me the rules, man. Those things were always meant to illustrate they were never meant to be an exhaustive list of, of the rules for life. They were meant to illustrate how we love God and how we love our neighbor. And so what does that mean about our relationship to the Sabbath? Well, we're not under the law. The law is a shadow looking forward to Christ. The, 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 the Sabbath is a shadow. It's an image. It's a picture for us. We live with an invitation to trust God. We live with an invitation to walk by faith. We live with an invitation to rest. Not a requirement, an invitation, an act of mercy. A good friend of mine said that as, as he thinks about the way we apply the law, that, that his kids will come to him and say, can I do such and such on the Sabbath? Can I do this thing? Can I do that thing? And he says, you know, you're asking a Jewish question for a Christian person. The question isn't, can I do this thing? The question for a Christian is, is this beneficial? And I think where he's going, he's, he's thinking about that idea in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. 
All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. That's what drives us. It's the heart. The heart to love God and the heart to love neighbor. And that's not a subjective whatever I want to do. The Bible makes it clear how we do those things, but it's, it's considering others more important than ourselves. The thing is, it would be really easy for us as a congregation to either delegate to the elders or to even have some committee meetings. And we could come up with some great rules. Okay, we as a congregation are going to honor the Sabbath this way. And we'll start down this list and we'll say, well, can I watch the Cowboys game? What about the Rangers? What if they're in the playoffs? What if it's game seven? Can I mow my yard on the Sabbath? Um, what about the pastor? Can the pastor preach on the Sabbath? Is it the Sabbath or is it the Lord's Day? Do we go back to the Seventh-day Adventist idea that we're honoring the Sabbath? It was originally intended in the Decalogue or have we moved to the Lord's Day as it seemed the disciples in the New Testament did? And we could just, we could obsess ourselves with all sorts of rules. And then we could start measuring each other, making sure, hey, you didn't mow your yard yesterday, did you? Hey, that, that hole in the roof, how big was it? Okay, it was over six inches, so you're good to go ahead and fix it because there was rain in the forecast. And, and the problem is we do that, and we would do that very efficiently. There's some really strong leaders in this room. I feel confident we could create a great set of rules. <laughs> But the problem is, where would we be at the end of that? We would be harried and we would be caught up in the wrong thing and it would have nothing to do with Sabbath rest. It would have nothing to do with the mercy of God. Our culture is built on stress, guys. It, we, we, we brag about it. It's, it's almost a badge of honor if I can say, man, I worked 70 hours last week. I worked 65 hours last week. Man, I was so busy. We had 12 appointments this past week. You are not going to believe how busy he is. I, I, it's a badge of honor. The reality is we as a culture struggle. This church's specific culture, our city, our town, our state. I mean, our state prides itself on the the independent, I'm going to get it done attitude. Then there's a really healthy part of that, right? There's a, there's a hard work, God-ordained work. We need to do it. But the reality is sometimes we're just caught up in the, in the rush. We become independent to the point where we just think it all depends on us. I, I remember one of, the, one of the small graces that I always felt like God did for me when I was a missions pastor is, is somewhere between four and six times a year, I would step out of my family and I would step out of my church for 10 days and go and kind of be off the grid. And what was amazing when I returned was my family still existed and the church still existed. Like as much as, 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 much as my actions when I was here would make you think that I thought it all depended on me, the reality was people did just fine in my absence. I don't think we believe that. I think that's a, that's a challenge. I think, I think part of the idea of where God was giving us mercy in the Sabbath and, and part of where it applies to us today is this idea of rest. The world doesn't depend on you. You're not nearly as important as you 
feel pressure to be. And I don't, I don't say that as a teardown. I'm just saying we sometimes can get wound up feeling like I've got to do this thing. Guys, I could take you to my office and I could make you laugh if I showed you the stack of to-do lists that I've created. Because about twice a week, I'll pull out a new piece of paper and I'll just frantically write down all the things I need to do. And then four or five days later, I'll have marked about half through half those and I create a new one. And it's comical. Because there are things on that list that have probably been there for a year. Which clearly communicates they weren't nearly as important. But that thing created stress enough in my mind that I've got to get it out on paper because it's got to get done. And the reality is the world goes on just fine. Obviously, I'm not advocating for laziness or, or sluggardliness. But I think most of you guys don't deal with that. Most of you deal with the other side of the equation, which is I've got to get this done. Everything's depending on me. And I think God in His mercy in, in the covenant with Israel said, hey, one day a week you're going to rely on me. You're going to trust me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to show you that the world doesn't revolve around you. And by the way, it's merciful that I do that because your body, your mind, you need rest. We think fondly about certain times early in the COVID quarantine, right? We sat and we played games and we did things with our families. We baked bread, obviously, as yeast was nowhere around. That we did things because we couldn't do all the other things. And, and many of you, some of you, I know it's not the case, but some of you think fondly about everything getting shut down. There were no activities to go to. There were no games to watch on TV. Nothing was happening, and it forced us into our little abodes. And it was delightful for a time. We're not under a Sabbath regu regulation. But God invites us in His mercy to understand the nature of why He gives us the law, or He gave the Israelites the law. But that Jesus is the fulfillment and you and I can walk forward in His mercy, in His rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's the image that Jesus wants us to see. That, 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 the, that you weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you is what he would have said to the Jews, to us. He would say, enter my rest. Trust me. He gives us a freedom of action that hadn't been seen before, the righteous conduct that centered on following him rather than a set of laws. Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So I hope for all of us, that we're willing to, to take the foot off the gas a bit. To say, God, so whether it's, whether it's a day of the week, whether it's some time each day, whatever it is, to actually say, God, I'm going to trust you for a bit. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to be around my brothers and sisters. We should never be too busy for each other. And I'm going to rest because you're the Lord of the Sabbath. You're the Lord. You are God. You've got this. I can trust you. And I don't even have to earn my salvation because you died on a cross to pay for it. Done. Finished. Let's pray. And as we're praying, would those serving communion come up? God, we're thankful for this day. And, and as, as these words go against everything 
that our culture tells us. Um, would you help us to believe it? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to, to take the foot off the gas pedal? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to worship you as you are worthy to be worshiped? Would you comfort us when we're anxious? Would you help us to know when there's a sheep in a hole that we need to, to get out? Help us to prioritize what you would prioritize. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.